Welcome once again. So glad you're here. And to all who have been a part of what God has been doing from day one or just today, happy church anniversary. Happy six years of being Cross of Grace together. And this morning, we have the privilege, like we have every Sunday, of hearing from God as he addresses us in his word and continuing on in our sermon series in the book of Ephesians. So please, turn in chapter 3, verse 14. Chapter 3, verse 14 of Paul's letter to the Ephesians, and we'll read all the way through verse 21 together, all the way through the end of the chapter today. And you'll find the passage uh, under the translator heading, Prayer for Spiritual Strength, in your Bibles. And if you don't have a Bible, or if you're new to the Bible, that's okay. We're glad you're here learning along with us. We have physical copies of the Bible underneath the center chair in the aisleway. Or you can jump onto your phone's browser or your Bible app of choice and search Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14, and we'll be reading from the ESV translation this morning. Si habla español, abran sus Biblias a Efesios capítulo 3, versículos 14 a 21. Pablo, ora otra vez por los Efesios. In our passage today, Paul returns... <laughs> to the prayer he began back in verse 1 of chapter 3. You see, he got started, but then he interrupted himself with what was a, a glorious sort of aside as he uh, waxed eloquently, waxed on about the, the mystery of the church, the mystery now revealed through the church. He now comes to what is his second prayer in the letter. First, we have a prayer in chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. Now, this is his second prayer in the letter. And it's a prayer that effectively draws the, the first half of the letter to a close and sets up the reader for what's to come in chapters 4 through 6. And it's a prayer in which we see Paul walking in the boldness and the access that he talked about in chapter 3, verse 12 walking in the boldness and the access that he has before God, he prays right here for what one pastor calls the biggest and the boldest thing he could think to ask. Just what that is, we'll see in a moment. But before we do, let me help us to approach this prayer together. It's a prayer that Paul has for the Ephesians back then, yet it's a prayer that we're invited to make ours now. That's why God preserved it in the Bible for the church, past, present, and future. And this morning, Cross of Grace, it's my prayer for you. On this Lord's Day and on this anniversary date that marks six years of existence as a church, it's my prayer for us as we look forward to year seven, year eight, and Lord willing, year 100 together. I'm praying with Paul that the Lord would answer this prayer for us, and I'm asking you today to pray it with me. For the glory of God, for the good of our church, and the good of your own soul, you need to pray this prayer. <laughs> and it really, it really is a prayer that we really do need to pray, because it's a prayer for those who are tempted to lose heart. Just as Paul said back in chapter 3, verse 12, He's pleading with the Ephesians. He says, so I ask you not to lose heart. And immediately following that, he offers this prayer. It's a prayer for those who are tempted to lose heart. 
for all kinds of reasons, all sorts of reasons, because of all kinds of doubts that might creep into our hearts. Doubting that God really is at work in the church, that his eternal plan for all the ages really is going forward and making progress. Doubting whether or not the church really is that wonderful and that special, or whether we've just been overblowing it for the past couple of weeks here as we talk about what the church is. Perhaps doubting even the love and the commitment of the Lord of the church for you. This morning, this is a prayer for those who are tempted to lose heart. And for those who are tempted to lose heart, Paul, he prays. And he prays a kind of prayer that leads us into this reality. And it's this reality in this text that's like designed to to smash (laughs) those stumbling blocks of doubt to bits in our mind, in our hearts. Because at the center of this text is one wrecking ball of a reality that is good news for any of us who are tempted to lose heart in any way. And this doubt-smashing, comfort-filling, soul-strengthening reality for those who are tempted to lose heart is that the King of Heaven dwells within our hearts. Let me say that again. The King of Heaven dwells within our hearts. That's it. That's the one and only point for us today. And this point, this reality, this truth is meant to come into our hearts and to comfort and to fill them with hope, with confidence, dispelling and banishing those doubts regarding what God is doing in the church, regarding if the church really is a wonderful place to be, regarding his own heart and affection for you. Paul's prayer takes us into the truth that the King of heaven dwells within our hearts. And as we turn to the passage before us today, we'll ask that he, Jesus, that he drive out the doubts within us and fill us with his presence. So without further ado, let's read Paul's prayer, and then we'll add to it just one more prayer, asking for God to to help us to understand it, to believe it, and to walk in all the goodness of it. So beginning in verse 14, Paul writes, For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. These are God's words. Let's pray for God's help. Oh Lord, we thank you for this prayer of Paul. We thank you that you have given this prayer to us, that you have invited us along with him to pray this, that you may fill us with all your fullness. 
And this morning, we ask, we, we, we understand our need. I understand my need. Holy Spirit, we ask you to come and to help us, to illuminate and open up our minds, to understand these things, to open up our hearts, to receive them, and to help us to take step after step deeper into the reality of your great love for us. We ask that you would speak to us, that you would show us Christ, that you would encourage our hearts and dispel the doubts within them through this word that you have for us today. And we ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So let me ask you, where is Jesus now? Where is he? You can answer. Where is he? In, in, okay, you, you know where I'm going with it, in your heart. Yes, but where is he right now? He is in heaven, right? He is in heaven. That's probably the quick answer. I was talking to my four-year-old about it this morning and said, when Jesus is in heaven and I go to be with him, Jesus is in heaven. If you said that, you'd be right. Jesus right now is exalted on high. He's, he's reigning and he's ruling from his heavenly throne. In fact, consider where we, where we last left him at the conclusion of Paul's first prayer in Ephesians chapter 1. Having been raised as the victor over sin and death and Satan, Jesus was, quoting Paul here, seated at God's right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. So he's, he's up there. He's in heaven, far above it all. That would be true to speak of him that way. Yet, when we come to Paul's second prayer, as we just read, we see there's more to the story here. We, we see that this Jesus, whose abode is in heaven, is also said to dwell in our hearts through faith. Simultaneously, church, he couldn't be further above it all or nearer to us. That's what's being advanced here. He couldn't be more transcendently above it all in power and might and majesty, but he couldn't be more imminent, near and close to his people. But even though you or I might know this intellectually, let me ask you this morning, does Jesus ever seem far from you? Does he ever seem far from you? Does he ever seem out of reach? You know, he, he's up there. He's out there. He's far removed from me. <laughs> Maybe Jesus to you is someone who is more of an abstraction and less of a person in whom you trust, in whom your soul delights. Perhaps that you think that as high and exalted and reigning in holy majesty as he is, <laughs> that he may not desire to draw near to you as much as you are aware that you, you think you disappoint him, that you fall short of him, that you feel like a dirty and unclean sinner, that you, didn't, you don't think he'd want to get his hands dirty with by getting too close to you. You might objectively this morning know that he loves you, <laughs> or at least intellectually understand that that's what the gospel teaches, that he loves his people. But if you're being honest, you don't really believe that it's true. 
Not, not, not true for you, at least. Maybe other people, but, but not me. His love really isn't upon me in that way. You don't really have a, a real working category in your Christian life, in your life at all, for communion with him, for actually living in his love. Because it could be easier for us to conceive of Jesus as reigning in power, you know, far above all things, sovereignly controlling and directing the entire universe according to his purposes. It could be easier for us to believe all that, but harder to believe that in all this, he actually desires to stoop down in love and draw near to someone insignificant like you. He's doing all this. He's managing all that. How would he, someone like him, have the time, have the concern, have the care for me? This morning, ask yourself, are any, are any of these you, in your mind, in your heart, and the experience that you have of the Christian life, is Jesus powerful, maybe, but not truly present with you? Is, is the head of the church whom we worship and whom we exalt is he just a kind of figurehead that we pay lip service to who's not really truly available or accessible to the people that he leads? Is he some far-removed founder, you know, who's out there that we don't and actually can't really know? Or is he kind of like the king of England, you know? He has a fancy title and is known to be important, but he has no real ability to affect or to impact or to exercise his influence in your life. Now listen, if Jesus seems far from you for any reason, then once again, in the book of Ephesians, the person and the work of the Holy Spirit comes to us as God's solution to our problem. And this is why Paul prays as he does in verses 14 and following. He's asking in these verses, and we'll turn to them quickly, he's asking God the Father, to strengthen us by his Spirit that we'd more fully understand and appreciate and enjoy the presence of his Son among us. And we saw back in chapter 1 in Paul's first prayer, we learned that the Spirit, he brings the power of the risen Christ to bear in our lives. And now here, we learn that the Spirit of God brings the presence, the presence of the risen Savior home to our hearts. And so we'll follow this thread and take step after step with Paul into this reality, descending deeper and deeper into the infinite love of Christ for his people and his presence to be with us. That's, that's gracious and loving and eagerly giving of himself to us. So turn with me and look at verse 14. We're just going to take Paul's prayer line by line with that big idea that the king of heaven dwells in our hearts, put out in front of us. And as we go, we'll see how that reality comes to dispel the, the doubts that we can have and that we can harbor within us. And so Paul, beginning in verse 14, he says this, For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven on earth is named. For this reason, for reason that the Ephesian church then and all the people who are in the church for all time have been brought near to God in Christ and made into a new family in which all the things that once divided them have now been made 
certainly secondary, and certainly with the hostility, that's been removed. We have now been made one new people, one new family, made up of those from every tribe and nation and tongue and culture, brought together in Christ. This is the fulfillment of God's big mystery, God's big plan for all the ages. For this reason, Paul says, because that is true of you, and for this reason that you might be tempted to lose heart, Paul offers this prayer. And in verses 14 and 15, we see to whom the prayer is given, where the prayer is directed. And so beginning in these verses, Paul introduces his prayer by identifying the one to whom his request is made. And in these verses, essentially what Paul is is saying here is saying, I pray to the Father of fathers, right? I pray to the God who created all things. That's verse 9 of chapter 3. I pray to the one from whom every family in heaven on earth is named. That is, for whom every human family, well, actually, in spiritual too, every family in heaven and earth is named, that is, derives their existence, patterns their own expression and experience of fatherhood after. He prays, in other words, to the greatest, to the truest, to the most powerful and benevolent father that there is. In effect, he's saying, I pray to the one who created fatherhood. He wrote the book on fatherhood. <laughs> and he's always perfectly loving and caring and good to his children. To this one, I offer up my request. And so then we come to the request itself. To this one, Paul offers up the request. And here's what the request is. He says in verse 16, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. First, we need to take note that Paul, as he makes this request to this father, to this God, he he asks that he would grant it according to the riches of his glory. That is, that he would give like he himself is, as one scholar puts it. Not grudgingly, or in tiny portions, as if he were afraid to exhaust his riches, or even suspected them to be limited in their contents, but instead, God being who he is, bestows according to the riches of his glory, that is, his own infinite fullness. So you see what Paul's doing here. He's got a big request to make of God, and he knows that we, that the church then, we are tempted to lose heart, to be doubting and discouraged, and we need God's grace and God's help desperately. We know this. But Paul doesn't say, according to the greatness of our need, I pray. <laughs> he doesn't say, according to ah, as much as I can think to pray for with a measure that I've decided upon. He says, no, 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 no. According to what? The riches of his glory, <laughs> beyond what I can even ask or think, a measure that's greater even than the measure of our need. I pray to this Father to so answer this prayer. So fully, so completely, so beyond what I could even imagine it would look like for him to answer it. Answer this prayer, Father. And he prays to this Father and asks him to give, not according to his need, but to his own ability. To the Father of fathers who is supremely able to give good gifts to his children. To this one, Paul bows his knee, as we read, and he requests the greatest gift imaginable. Look with me at what he asked for. Verse 16, carrying on. He asked this father 
that he, God, would grant you, would grant us, what? To be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. He says, I want God, just like I asked back in chapter 1, to do what? To fill you with his spirit. To fill you with his spirit in your inner being. That is your soul within you. The inner man literally is what the Greek says here. He says, I want him to fill you with his spirit, with power in your inner being. That is, as one scholar puts it, the aspect of our being that cannot be seen, cannot be physically touched, but can be weak and feeble. It can be strengthened with power. It can be invigorated or infused with strength from heaven via prayer. And so Paul says, God, I want you to do a work in us, to do a work in them. And I want you to affect, to change, to do something in their souls so that they would be able to, as verse 17 carries on, know and understand and appreciate that Christ dwells within them. And we'll get to that. But notice how he says he's praying for power through whom? The Spirit. He prays for the Spirit to come because the Spirit is the one who brings not only the power, but the presence of the Savior to bear in our lives. He says we need outside help to come and do this work within us. We need the Spirit to do something that only He can do and to bring us into this deeper, richer, fuller experience of what we have in Christ. He prays that the Spirit, as one author puts it, would cause us to actually feel Christ's heart for us. That's what the Spirit is coming to do here. He's strengthening our hearts to grasp at, to comprehend, to lay hold of the reality that Christ dwells within us. And as Dane Ortland says, the Spirit, He makes the heart of Christ real to us. Not just heard, but seen. Not just seen, but felt. Not just felt, but enjoyed. The Spirit takes what we read in the Bible and believe on paper about Jesus and moves it from theory to reality. Moves it from doctrine to experience. This is why Paul prays that God would strengthen us with his Spirit so that we might grasp at all the more fully that Christ dwells within us, that it might move from theory to reality. Listen, the work of the Spirit in us in this way can be compared to this illustration that Ortland offers in his book. He says, it's one thing as a child to be told that your father loves you. You believe him, you take him at his word, but it's another thing, unutterably more real, he says, to be swept up in his embrace, to feel the warmth, to hear his beating heart within his chest, to know instantly the love in the protective grip of his arms. It's one thing to hear he loves you. It's another thing to feel his love. This, Ortland says, is the glorious work of the Spirit. This is why Paul prays the way that he does. It's for us, like the difference between knowing the sun is out there right now, shining in the sky, because we've checked our weather app, <laughs> or even if it's behind the clouds, we know intellectually it's daytime, so the sun is out there, though we can't quite experience it. It's the difference between knowing the sun is out there 
intellectually, and knowing the sun is shining by feeling its warmth upon your skin, its warmth upon your face, refreshing you (laughs) and invigorating you with the heat that comes from it. And you see, church, the Spirit's work is to bring us deeper and deeper into the warm embrace of Christ. And this makes a world of difference in our lives. It moves that Christ out there reality to a Christ in here with us sort of reality. So Paul prays to God the Father to fill us with his Spirit so that, verse 17, Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. He prays to the Father to send the Spirit that we would enjoy our communion, our living, active, real fellowship with His Son by faith. And now, it's not that Christ isn't now with us or isn't already with the church back then, right? Christ is with us. We've already seen in chapter 2. How did we get saved in the first place? We were dead, but then what happened? God raised us up with him and seated us on heavenly places with Christ. We've been united to Christ by our faith when we heard the gospel and God granted us the gift of spiritual sight and faith and we reached out our empty hand and laid hold of Christ and all he offered in himself. We've been united to him by faith. So it's not that we don't now have him or even that you know, Jesus kind of comes and goes. He just stays for a little bit with us and is passing through. No, we do have Christ with us. We are united to him. But once again here, as it was back in chapter 1, Paul's not asking that God would work by his spirit to give them something and to give us something that we don't already have. <laughs> but instead, he's praying that we would be drawn into a deeper understanding, a deeper appreciation, a deeper enjoyment of what we already have in Jesus. And so really what Paul is praying for here is that we would experience what one commentator refers to as the constant presence of Christ. The constant presence of Christ. And this is signaled in verse 17 by the Greek word that is translated in our Bibles as dwell. You see that there, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. What do you think of when you hear the word dwell? Well, in the original language, that word dwell, it means something that is not a temporary stay. It's not a passing visit. Instead, it's a word that refers to a permanent dwelling. To the reality, and this would be actually a good way to translate it and to understand it, to the reality that Christ would make his home in our hearts. He's not a visitor. He's not a guest. He's not passing through. His home is in our hearts. So near to us is he so, so dear to us is he and we to him that his own home is in our hearts. He doesn't just check up every now and then. <laughs> his home is in our hearts. And Paul says, I pray that the Spirit would just help them to understand and help them to know that Christ, the King of heaven, <laughs> lives within them in this way, permanently dwelling desiring to live together with us in fellowship, giving himself to us constantly and continually. He is there. And his presence with us is is gracious. It's loving. It's self-giving. Jesus is there to be with us. 
So Paul prays we would experience the constant presence of Christ in our lives at all times and that everything thereby would be changed, would be different, knowing that Jesus is with us and the highs and lows and everything in between and all the trials at any moment. What's true about us is that Christ is with us and in us and for us. And the Spirit makes that reality real to us. He assures us that it's true as he works in our hearts and he testifies to our soul and takes the sun that's out there and, and, and brings its warmth into us. So Paul prays that we know this presence and he says here that faith, our trust in Jesus is the, the instrument, right? The means by which we come to experience it and to know it. He says that Christ would dwell in your hearts by faith. And so the reality that Christ is there with us that doesn't change. That doesn't go up or down. But our faith does, doesn't it? Even as we sing, our faith can, can be stronger or weaker, can, can be wavering, can be faltering, can be doubting. If this is true or we've just convinced ourselves that it is or the church is just a good idea and a good way to stay out of trouble so we come to it, no, this is real. God really is dwelling with us through faith. And Paul prays that the Spirit would come to strengthen that faith, to strengthen our grasp and to strengthen our grip upon the Savior who desires to be with us. And the text has come to us, this text comes to us to help our faith, to strengthen the weakness of our faith and to defeat the doubts that we have, to become a refuge for our souls. And we think about this, and for those who are in the church and really those who are out of the church, this idea of constant presence, this kind of imminence, I, I would argue that this is something that we're really all looking for, isn't it? We really all do want to have that experience, don't we? That we're not alone in life. That there's somebody who just loves us. That we just belong somewhere. That we do matter. And we're all looking, those within the church or those who are apart from the church, for this experience of this kind of constant presence. A lot of the times we look, and we look in the wrong places. We look uh, through screens and at screens <laughs> to be connected to things that are out there like they're, they're true and real and meaningful and important for us right here as we spend time on you know, social media and as we go and get caught up in viral movements and campaigns and things that draw our attention and make us feel like we're really a part of something big, but really we're pretty detached from the whole thing. <laughs> even different apps, you know, wellness apps and different things that we can look at or, or check into and access to try to find ways that we can get a measure of peace, get a measure of, of stillness, get a measure of, of comfort and trying to bring something near to us. We want someone in our corner. We all know the experience, don't we, of being in the middle of something, being in the middle of suffering, being in the middle of a tough season in life and just having someone there with you. You know what I mean? Even, you know, a phone call or text message is good, <laughs> but there's just something about having someone who's there beside you, who can put an arm around you, who can embrace you. And even if they say or do nothing, you know that their heart goes out to you because what? They're there with you. And when we love somebody and we get that message or we get that call or that text from someone and from someone in the church that they're going through something, what's our inclination? To sit back and say, oh, good thoughts your way. <laughs> Or is it to go? Can I get you a meal? Can I come to your house? Can I help you practically, right? We all, we've experienced this from each other. Love draws us near to, to the object of the love, to the beloved thing, right? So we move near one another in love. We move near toward one another when something's going wrong. 
in our lives. And we know how, how good it is, how reassuring it is, how comforting it is to have someone who's there with us. And what this text is trying to, to get us to, to see here, and it's spiritual, and it's invisible, and it evades our regular sight, is that Jesus is even nearer than that friend who puts his arm around you. Jesus is even nearer to our hearts than that person sitting beside us to offer us comfort. He is near to us. His home is with us. And that's amazing. That's astounding that the high king of heaven who reigns over all things, he has the time, the availability, and the eagerness to be always with us, strengthening, encouraging, sympathizing in our weakness and trials and suffering, offering himself and all of his grace that he's purchased upon the cross to us. This is what Paul is getting at here. This is what he wants the church to, to know and to grab at and to experience. And I mentioned that this reality, it should have the effect of dispelling our, our doubts, right? And the big doubts that I think Paul is, is getting at here and that I mentioned at the top would be that God really isn't doing <laughs> what we, we think he's doing in the church, that his big plan for all the ages isn't going forward. And just consider how Christ dwelling in our hearts speaks to that, how it addresses that, okay? Even as they see Paul in chains and imprisoned and, and, and bound, is Christ bound? <laughs> Think about this. Even as Paul is in chains and it may look like and the signs and the suggestions around us in our culture today might make it seem like, man, is the church really relevant? <laughs> is it really going forward? Is the mission being accomplished? Well, here's the question. Is God dwelling with his people? Yes. God is dwelling in our hearts through faith. God's big goal in all time in history, to have a people for himself and to do what he said from the Old Testament to the New Testament, that I will be their God and they will be my people and I will what? Make my dwelling with them. That big pursuit that we see happening in the Garden of Eden even after the Garden of Eden, what happens? God saves the people out of Egypt, and what does he do? Gives them instructions to build the tabernacle, that portable tent and sanctuary that his presence would be among them. And then after that, the physical temple. Then after that, God himself comes down in the form of, of Jesus. God the Son takes on human flesh to be with us, and here now, it keeps intensifying, you see, and escalating, such that there was a place where God was, and certain people could go in there at certain times, and then even Jesus comes to us himself, physically and bodily, but he couldn't be with everyone at the same time. <laughs> but now, wherever God's people are, the world over, every tribe, nation, and tongue, God is dwelling with man. The high king of heaven dwelling with those who are his redeemed people. In their hearts, by faith, according to the power of the Spirit. So is God's plan going forward? Absolutely. The fact that Christ dwells in their hearts means that the big plan of God is certainly being accomplished and no chains of any kind could deny, could take away, could argue against the reality that Christ was with them then and he's with us now. He's still making his home in the hearts of his people and no chains and no external forces and external pressures can kick him out of there. He's made his people his permanent dwelling. Second, if we were to doubt the wonder of the church, oh man, we've spoken to it already, but the fact that the God, the holy, true, and living God 
would dwell among sinful, rebellious, unclean people. (laughs) If that's not a wonder, that God would dwell with us and not just tolerate us, not just keep us at an arm's length, even back from the, you know, the tabernacle, not just have a few special people going there at certain times and in certain ways, but God would say, hey, I'm making my permanent home with you. We're going to live in common together. I'm so (laughs) opening myself up and so accessible to you that you can enjoy me anytime, any place, anywhere. You don't need a special building. You don't need to be a special person. If you are mine, you have me. This is the church, the, the, the temple and the, the dwelling place of God corporately and collectively, but also individually. In our hearts, God is dwelling with us. Is there any institution other than the church in which the God of gods is in, is behind, is giving himself to and for? Is there any other institution that the founder of that institution, right, that the leader is personally present to be with every single person that he leads the way Jesus is. No place on earth like the church. Christ, our leader, Christ, our head, Christ, our powerful king, makes himself available to every single one of his subjects. No place like this where we have access to a leader who cares so deeply for us. And this speaks to the final doubt. Do you doubt God's love for you? (laughs) Consider, church, all he's done to make his home to be with you. Because we were once far from him. Our home was not with God. In fact, we were kicked out of his household. We were alienated from him. We were walking in sin and dead in trespass. We were operating according to the prince of the power of the air. We had no inheritance in his family but wrath coming to us from him. And so the Father sent his Son to take on the likeness of sinful flesh and to live among sinful people, to live the life they should have lived, to die the death they deserve to die, and then to conquer all of their sin and all of their rebellion and all the death they deserved through his victorious resurrection. The Father sent his Son from heaven to earth to complete this rescue mission (laughs) that we who were once far off might be brought near. Christ dwells in our hearts through faith because he came to dwell among men and to give his life for men and women upon the cross. And so what we experience in this dwelling of Christ through faith has been achieved by, has been purchased by Jesus upon the cross. And it doesn't stop there. If we consider (laughs) that he loved us while we were yet sinners, consider now how he considers you. He loved you while you were a sinner. He pursued you. He went to the cross for you. But then what did he do? He redeemed you. And God has received you. And now he calls you son or daughter and you're a member of his family forever. So if he loved you then, how much more are we to experience his love for us now? Precious in his sight. He will hold us fast. He will dwell with us. He will lead us into a deeper and deeper experience of his love. And that's just what Paul gets at. And that's what he turns to here as the prayer progresses. Because the presence of Christ with us isn't just like a, I was thinking about it this week. Imagine like if your boss lived in your house and your boss had an office next to your bedroom. <laughs> you would have access to your leader, right? And you have all the, all the leadership and support you could want, but it probably wouldn't be comfortable. <laughs> It'd probably be a, a tense, 
right, and kind of weird <laughs> if your boss had an office next to your bedroom. Um, you know, it might be something that you were more open to accountability and to scrutiny and to uh, attention there. It might not be comforting, but with Christ, <laughs> it, it's far better, isn't it? Because we have no fear of measuring up to please him. He's already measured up for us and given to us everything he, he earned in his perfect life. He comes to us to be present with us in love. Not scrutiny, not judgment, no cause for fear, no cause for us to shrink back, but only to step toward and step deeper into his love for us, which is what Paul says here in verse 17 as he continues. He prays that Christ would dwell in our hearts through faith, that you, he says, being rooted and grounded in love. And he mixes his metaphor here to say, being rooted like a tree is rooted firmly in the ground and, and grounded in his love like a solid foundation underneath your feet. I pray that this would be your experience together, that you all would be rooted and grounded in this love so that you may have the strength to comprehend, to try to grasp at, to try to wrap your minds and hearts around the reality with all the saints, what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. So what kind of presence does Christ come to, to bring to us, to bring us into? Paul tells us it's a loving presence. He loved us, and he laid his life down for us, and now the life we live, we live in faith with the, li the life of the one who uh, loved us and gave himself for us at, at the heart, at the center of it. The presence he has to be with us is a presence that is loving, that is meant to refresh and to renew and to restore our souls, not to make us fearful or to shrink back or even something that's neutral and tolerating us. It's a presence of love, and Paul prays that we would be able to get as much of that as we can. That's why he says, you know, every breadth and length and height and depth, he gives all these directions and all these dimensions, not to say that we can limit it, because he says later, it's infinite. But he means from every, uh, the breadth and length and height and depth and all these things, from all sides and from every way, I just pray that you would be able to grab a hold of as much of it as you can. That you would be able to, to know. And that is know, not exhaustively, right? But truly, to know really. To know like you know the sun is on your face. The love of God in Christ. The kind of love that is, is beyond just intellectual knowledge. The kind of love that comes from a real and true and sweet communion with him. This is what Christ has for us. This is what he died to bring us into. This is what he died to, to offer to all those here today who haven't yet received him, who haven't yet come into this. He offers you that constant presence. He offers you that love and acceptance he offers you himself. Not even just his benefits, not even just his gifts, but himself, his very self. God come to be with us in Christ through faith. Through turning away from all the other means of trying to, to find peace and joy in life. Turning away from all the sin that separated us from him for which he went to go die. And turning to Jesus and saying, I'd like to receive him and all of him that I can. Christ offers himself to us in love, and it's a love that is beyond what we can imagine. It's a love that is infinite. So much so that uh, one uh, author, Jonathan Edwards, he wrote a book called Heaven is a World of Love, in which he talks about our experience 
now, but then looking forward to our experience even then. If his love is infinite, <laughs> we'll always be, in other words, grasping at it. And even as we get more, we'll never have our minds wrapped, our hearts wrapped around all of it. Edwards tells us that heaven is going to be a place where we're step after step with an ever-increasing acquisition, but also an ever-increasing uh, desire and an ever-increasing joy coming to understand more of and to experience more of and to grab hold of more of the love of God in Christ. Church, it's infinite. It's ongoing. It's a pool that we keep stepping into, and it only goes deeper and deeper still. We cannot exhaust it, and God offers it to us, and Paul prays, Spirit, would you come and help us to know just how good Jesus is, to know how good Jesus is, that the Father would send the Spirit to help us enjoy this son. That God, as he finishes in verse 19, would give us as much of himself as we can right now handle and grab at and process. He says that you may, finishing his prayer, be filled with all the fullness of God. And the closing of this prayer is what led that one pastor to say, this is the boldest thing Paul could ask. He's asking that the infinite, eternal, almighty, holy God would give all of himself, even though we are not capable of receiving and understanding and wrapping our minds around all that he is, that he would give all himself to us. And Paul says, I know that's a big ask. I know what we can't do it on our own, but Holy Spirit, would you come and help us to continue growing in? our understanding, our enjoyment, our appreciation of all that he is together. Would you help us to receive and to know <laughs> as much of God as we possibly can by his spirit, through his son who lives within our hearts? And as that happens, and as we together grow in that, would that dispel the doubts? Would that warm our hearts by the experience of his love and would that make us confident <laughs> that the church is nothing at all that is overblown? But if God in all his fullness is coming to be here with us, there really is no place else like this that we could go. No place else like this that we could invite our neighbors into where they could experience the love and the joy and the peace that comes from the God who fills us with his very self. This is what Paul asked for them. This is what we desire, we pray for us, that God, with all his fullness, would fill the Cross of Grace Church. Going into year seven, going into year eight, going into year 100, that he would continue helping us to grab hold of as much of him as we can. And so, a couple points of application to help us take this with us and to grab hold of it as much as we can. Application. Paul's saying to the church then and to the church now, he says, in short, don't lose heart, right? Because Christ dwells in your hearts. <laughs> don't lose heart, don't doubt, don't be discouraged or dismayed because Christ is with you. And here's four takeaways, four ways we can respond to that reality. One, we should be confident that God desires to be with us even more then we want to be with him. Think about that. God desires to be with us even more than we want to be with him because we're limited. We were once sinful and apart from him, and he comes in to offer his whole self to us even though we can't do it apart from himself. He desires to give himself to us, and it goes beyond what we can even ask or think. 
as verses 20 through 21 tell us, Paul's closing blessing in this prayer. He says, having asked this big ask of God, he says, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations. To him, if we want to be with God and we want his fullness to fill us, how much more then does God desire to give himself to his people? that we would enjoy his glory, that we would share in his joy, that we would be filled with excitement and eagerness to welcome others into this. How much more does God desire to be with us because he's made the whole thing happen according to the initiative of his grace? So Cross of Grace Church, because this is true, we can have the confidence that God does desire to fill us with all his fullness for the sake of his glory, for the joy of our souls, for the good of our neighbors. God desires to be present with us. We can have confidence that God desires our church to, to, to flourish in him, to be fruitful in him, to love and to enjoy and be laughing all the way together as we're on mission here in our city. He wants this for us. We don't have to doubt that. We don't have to be wondering what his heart toward us is. We can take it to the bank that he is for us and wants to be with us even more than we could know or want him to be with us. And so, listen, no matter what, what chains, going back to last week, no matter what chains we might see around us, no matter what discouragements or obstacles we encounter, would we step into the next year and every succeeding year with the confidence that God delights to make his home with us and can do even more than we ask or imagine? And in, in this, we consider what he's already done among us. And I could have a long list and we could stay for a long time talking about this and just become a members meeting. But consider already what God has done among us in the past six years. He's kept us in existence, for one. We're still here. He's raised up new pastors and leaders from within the church. He's even providing for a full-time pastor and part-time administrator to serve the church vocationally. He's providing what we didn't have before. He sustained us through a pandemic, which began in year three of our church plant, which by all human accounts and reckoning should have been the end of us. But he sustained us through a pandemic, and he also used that pandemic to put us in this building that we're in now. This was not even on the radar for us, church. We were sitting in plastic chairs <laughs> in an auditorium, and God used a pandemic to bless us. If he can do that, what can't he do? Here we are because of his faithfulness and his goodness toward us. He took a launch team that had nine kids to start off with, and now there's over 40 kids, <laughs> I lose count after 40, who are running around in here all the time. <laughs> he's made us fruitful. He's helped us to multiply. He's given us the next generation of Cross of Grace Church to pass the gospel onto. He's building something that will last. And he's created a family of God that's made up of those of diverse cultures and backgrounds and identities, all enjoying life together in Christ. And all we have to do is look around the room and take a quick glance to know this is true. We've lived it. We've tasted it. We've experienced the unifying power of the gospel together. Regardless of what separates us or divides us, we've been enjoying this gospel and this Jesus for six years. And I'm eager to keep sharing in his joy with you. Will we be confident that he'll continue filling us for the years to come with all his fullness and blessing our church in ways that we couldn't have dreamed as we carry on in our life and mission together. Oh, man. 
Last thing I'll say. We don't have time for all the application, but let me give you one more. This will set up where we're going in Ephesians. God has given his love to us and his son, and he's poured it out in our hearts by his spirit. And so one more thing to take away is that we ought to make his love the motivation that we have to live the Christian life together. You see, and all that follows in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1 to the end of the book, Paul's telling us, so therefore do this, and therefore do that, and therefore don't do this, because this is what God has done, and this is who you are now. He gives commands. He gives us things that we ought to, to do. But Paul doesn't want us to pass go on the doing before we've been freshly rooted and grounded in his love. You see that? He doesn't want us to get to the, the to-dos and the oughts before we've marveled just one more time at the fact that God loves us, has brought us near, and has given himself to us. What comes prior to our doing, church, is our delighting in Christ. And so before launching off into these imperatives that he'll give us, he says just one more time, you have been rooted and grounded in love. God has made his home with you and freely pours out his love in you. So allow this to be your motivation. You don't have to measure up. You don't have to prove yourselves. You don't have to earn any of this. He's come to be with you. He's made your heart his home, and he's eager to give you all strength and all grace and everything that you would need to be the church together. So now step out. Now go do. Now take up the commands that I'm going to write in chapters 4 and following because he loves you and because you love him, because he's opened your eyes to see him and just how good and wonderful as he is. And so would this motivate, as chapter 4 verse 1 says, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called? I could say more, but we'll end it here. Church, the Lord of heaven, he dwells within our hearts. And we together, we get to live in his love. How wonderful is what we've been made to be a part of. What other place in the world is like this? Would we all together be comforted and strengthened and filled with the joy that Christ is with us, that he is within us, and he's always ready to lead us deeper and deeper into his great love for us? Let's pray. Oh, Father, we pray continually, and we pray yet again that you would fill us with your spirit that we might be strengthened to know and to grasp at and to lay hold of Christ in us. Christ in us, our hope. Christ in us, our joy. Christ in us, our peace and confidence now and forever. Fill us with your spirit to enjoy your son. We ask and pray in his name. Amen.